0: Would you please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I remind you this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Let's pray. Lord God once we were dead and one day we will die in the flesh but we will be raised again because Jesus Christ lit, it lives today Lord we pray that you would revive us according to your word cause your word to take good root in our in the soil of our of our hearts and we pray Lord that you would help us to bear fruit in keeping with the faith And walking in grace and delighting in our Savior. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to do this and see this fruit bearing or this bearing fruit in our lives according to the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. So as we think about our lives, we would summarize a lot of things. We've we've seen those statistical uh, statements about the course of our lives. We brush our teeth for 15 years. We fall asleep. And we've slept for 25 years of our lives in an 80-year life. You, you know, you've heard all of those statistics. I know that none of that what I've just said is correct, but you get the principle. I've heard it all. Um, you sleep for an inordinate amount of time. You you cook for you know three years and a half. Uh, you you go to the bathroom. You you take a shower for at least a year and a half's worth of time. Well, let me ask you a question. Let's add one to that list. How much of our time in the course of our daily lives has been used in sin and things which contradict the Word of God? That's a good question. That's where Peter has us thinking this morning. He's asking us right off the beginning, In verse 3, not right from the beginning, but right in the middle, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, and etc. He's going to make a point about godliness. He's going to make a point about Christlikeness. He's going to make a point about what it means to live as a Christian in an ungodly world where there is nothing but darkness and destruction and fleeing from Jesus Christ and the constraints of the gospel and of life with God. And he's going to ultimately make the point that being or pursuing Christ likeness is the purpose of the believer's life. It's why God has saved you and why he's redeemed me. But he wants to ask us, he's going to goad us into thinking, how much of the time of your already past life has been used in sin and haven't we done enough of that? have we used and misused enough of our lives, wasted enough of our lives in the pursuit of sinful, prospect, uh, sinful practices? You know, cursing, idolatries of various kinds, pursuit of lusts, wasting of time, all of those sinful things. How many years have I spent in anger and frustration, bitterness and being angry with my beloved spouse or with my children or with other people? only to have it eventually dissolve, and or for me to realize, you know, I was at fault. I've sinned against the Lord. Lord, forgive me for being angry. But think about the sheer waste of time. And Peter wants to encourage us to think about being Christ-like. And so he says, look, if you look at your life, if you examine the totality of your life, haven't we used enough time? Haven't we wasted enough time in the pursuit of sin? Let that question just sit and sift and, pr- and and just just begin to settle down. As Christians, we understand we are to have the mind of Christ. We are to think and to live like him. But one of the most significant factors in being motivated to do this is to consider how much time we have wasted in the pursuit of of sin and so peter wants us to take up seriously the calling to be like christ so in light of all the things that he's already said in light of all of his encouragements and and promptings and proddings in light of all of his statements about the christian life and about the christian his commands to be harmonious and like-minded brotherly kind-hearted not returning evil for evil to have this mindset that's like christ to walk in a way that imitates Jesus Christ, he says, therefore, in light of all this stuff, in light of all these things, and in light of all the privileges he's just reviewed at the end of chapter 3, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Or maybe in your version, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Or take up the mind of Christ. So we see three things this morning, the first of which is, if we, if we take up the mind of Christ, we're going to see three developments in our own thinking. We're going to change in our understanding of the world, and we're going to begin thinking differently about certain subjects, the first of which is, we're going to look at suffering in a very different way. I'm going to look at suffering in a very different way. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, in in other words, in the physical bodies, very much in a physical body, exactly like ours, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Christ suffered in the flesh, didn't he? Didn't Christ suffer in the flesh? Or was it merely a seeming sort of thing, something that only seemed fleshly and real, like our bodies, but not really truly physically endured that maybe jesus was only spiritually present there the son of god was only spiritually present in another person's body he felt what that person endured no christ suffered in the flesh a core tenet of the christian faith if you don't believe this then you don't believe the gospel you must believe that jesus christ suffered in the flesh otherwise why believe what's the point as those who suffer in the flesh, as we understand the nature of the flesh, it's vital that we understand, that we believe that Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh. It's vital that Christ did suffer in the flesh. Otherwise, how can he redeem sinful flesh? Christ suffered in the flesh. He was tempted in the flesh. He was ridiculed in his body. He was ridiculed regarding his appearance. He suffered the deprivations of hunger. He was exhausted. He experienced exhaustion of spirit. He was discouraged. He experienced the height and range of human emotions. He had mental anguish, physical suffering in his flesh due to whips and beatings, the indignities of persecutions, ridicule, spitting upon his dishonor at the hands of those who took him and took his life. He bore the cross in pain and his weakened condition with a crown of thorns on his head bleeding from his head bleeding from his hands and feet being nailed to the cross and he endured a cursed death and yielded his spirit in utter agony. Christ suffered in the flesh. Why should I care? (laughs) Because if Christ is did not suffer in the flesh for you, then you're not saved. You're not redeemed of your sins. No one has made payment for your sins, and it is an impossibility for you as well. There is no atonement. There is no satisfaction before the Father. There's no expiation, no propitiation. The wrath of God is still very much against you. So we must believe, and so it is true, because it is true we believe Christ suffered in the flesh this was proven in the other three chapters Peter has made this clear and now he says in light of this fact in light of this theological reality in light of this understanding that Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh you too arm yourselves with the same way of purpose or the same way of thinking Jesus suffered the word is Pasco it's from Pasco it's Uh, pathantos, to feel. It's to undergo the full sensory experience of human experience. And it says that he he, he suffered. And the word literally is over us. He suffered for us, for our sakes. Since he suffered in this way, we need to think the way that he thought. Well, why should I? Why am I not entitled to live my life the way that I want? Why should I? Well, who are you to tell me how to think? Well, Jesus endured suffering for your sake and for mine. Sometimes we do things for our children, our smaller children. When they're young, they take it quite for granted. And, or maybe we've done a good thing for, for an unbelieving neighbor or someone else at work, and we thought, I'm going to do this for them because you know I care about them. And they never said a thing. And we get a little bit indignant. And we say, well, look at what I did for you. And they come asking for another favor. And we say, well, I already did something for you. And and you were not grateful. Look what I did for you. Well, it seems to us that in in our human spirit, we understand what it is to do something for someone and therefore to require some recognition of that fact. It is not selfish in God. It It is not dishonoring to Him to have such a zeal for His glory that He says, look what I have done for you. My beloved Son has died, suffered in the flesh for you in order to redeem you in the flesh so that one day you will be raised to new life in Christ. Therefore, Yes, I have a claim on your life. Yes, God has a claim upon our lives. He has a righteous claim. He is entitled to it. We belong to him. We are redeemed for his purposes. He has a righteous claim upon us. Not only because he is our creator, and of course he is. Not only because we are his creation. Yes, indeed we are. And not just because he's God and he has a right to command it, but because Christ, who is God, gave himself for us in order that he might redeem us. So since he suffered in this way, we need to think the way that he thought. And in, in, as we do this, one of the initial things that comes to us is that we have to, we have to look at suffering in a very different way. Why do I endure suffering? Why did, why is my life filled with suffering? Why do I experience? And we talked about when, on Wednesday night in Bible study what suffering looks like. Oh, loneliness, joblessness, concern about finances. When we get up and we, and our bodies hurt and our ankle hurts and, and our back hurts and, and the doctor tells us yet again that there's another immunodeficient disease that I have. And that, well, I have osteoporosis, and that every day from here on out is going to be just a little bit more sore. Well, the dentist says, well, you're going to have to replace that tooth, and it's only going to cost a, a small sum, which we're happy to put into, split into 15,000 payments <laughs> of about $3,000. We all get it. We all hear that news. We walk home or we walk out to the car, how am I going to be able to afford this? We worry about our finances. We go to bed with concern over our children. Are they walking with the Lord? Lord, what did I do? Where did I fall short? When will you save them? We suffer in all sorts of ways. Of course, we suffer for our embrace of sin, too. Why do we endure suffering? Why do our loved ones suffer? Why is my life filled with suffering, we might say, some of us? Well, there are all sorts of different ways in which we suffer, and I I just say that if you don't attend Bible study, you're welcome to. And if, if anyone who is listening or watching would like to be a part of the Bible study on Wednesday evenings via Zoom, you're welcome to. Send me your email, and we'll happily add you to the list. But we were talking about suffering and all the ways in which suffering as a Christian, is, is true of all of us in this world. But there's a discoverable purpose in suffering, and it, and it is that it would yield, its purpose is so that it would yield the fruit of repentance and turning away from sin and the embracing of righteousness. There are two big words, mortification and vivification. In other words, the, the decaying away of the patterns of sin in us. In other words, the subduing of sins doesn't mean sinlessness, something which we can never achieve in this life, but it means that sin and its foundation in our life is decaying slowly, day by day, year by year. That the hold that sin once had on us has been lessened. And by the grace of God, we don't do all the things that we used to do. And more than that, in vivification, now, I love the law of. Of God, I love the restraints of the Bible and of the commands of God to abstain, yes, but also to do. That's what the psalmist says. And he says it because he's redeemed, because he, he's discovered what it means to be free of the tyranny of sin. And so if we were to arm ourselves with Christ-like mind, and we were to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking when Christ who endured suffering for the sake of sinful flesh in order that he might redeem all those whom God had given him, we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking with the same purpose because he suffered in the flesh and those who suffer in the flesh cease from sin. So when you encounter suffering and you you look up or you sit up in your bed and you realize, I've been deeply lonely. Or you're in the morning and you say, I don't know how to face the day. My thoughts are so anxious. And as I think about my life, I wonder about how and why I should even live. You should look at that moment and see it in light of eternity and arm yourself with the way in which Christ thinks. This Suffering, which I am enduring, is intended for my ceasing from the embrace of sin. It's to make sin have less of a hold on me. It's to teach me to rely more and more upon my Savior, to live in him and to die to sin in the world. Suffering's purpose is for the decrease of sin. The discoverable purpose of suffering is so that I would cease from sin and embrace righteousness. And so God sends suffering like He did with His own Son so that we would have the cosmic privilege of turning from sin, a gift that we would never have had without Christ, something we could never do if Christ did not come and did not suffer in the flesh for us. Yes, He suffered for us. Yes, he has a divine claim upon our lives. No, we are not our own. But there's a a meta purpose, a greater purpose, a a, a more summarizing purpose found in verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Okay, we think about our lives. I'm 55 years old. If I live to a ripe old age, I might live to 80. That means I've lived more than two-thirds of my life. It's a long time, but I'll tell you, it went like this. And every year seems to go faster and faster and faster. And if I think about the totality of my life, I... I, I, I would almost despair of life altogether if if I didn't have the grace of God before me at the same time. But Peter's saying, look, think about the totality of your life. Haven't you spent enough time sinning? So because that's such a sobering, uh, rational thought, I've spent so much time sinning, therefore shouldn't I put a far greater effort into serving the Lord And walking in righteousness, arming myself with the same way of thinking about life as Jesus Christ did, who died for me and gave Himself for me. All for whom Christ suffered and died, and now who who now live, should spend. We should spend the rest of our lives not indulging in the lusts of the flesh, the appetites of every noble kind. But for the will of God, let's 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 acknowledge this right now. Our lives will never be well ordered unless we are living and obeying the will of God. Your life will never be well ordered. Your life will never be one filled with joy and of a sense and apprehension of the blessings of God unless we are submitting to the will of God and obeying him. And I give thanks to God that little by little, day by day, he enables me by his grace. And he is doing the same with you to obey him. If you're his child, we're all at varying stages in growth, but we're all growing. Every last one of us. If you're not, then you're not a child of God. We need to believe the gospel. There's there's good hope here. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ Turn away from sin, embrace the Lord Jesus, and he will enable you by his grace to begin from this day forward to live for him. The Gospels always before us. It motivates the believer, and it prompts the unbeliever to come and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. And So we can no longer live to indulge ourselves, but now we must live for God. And so that's why that's what suffering teaches us. That's what suffering teaches us. I can no longer live for myself. I must now live for the Lord. And that's what suffering teaches us day by day. But there's also a a second thing that we come to understand in light of this taking on of the mind of Christ. We have an honest and better understanding of idolatry. If we take up the mind of Christ, if we have this approach like Christ, if Christ has suffered in the flesh and we are motivated to arm ourselves also with the same way of thinking or the same purpose, then we're going to have a far better understanding of what idolatry is. And verse 3 really reveals what those lusts are that he referenced back in verse 2. So we're, we're, we're to live the rest of our time, in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men. Well, what are those lusts? Well, verse 3, sensuality, lusts of various kinds, of a sexual nature, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. Some of those make us quite uncomfortable, and others, others of them really don't trouble us. But I think all of us are in view here. Why does Paul need to warn the church and Christians? He's writing to elect people. He's writing to believers. Elect aliens in the world. Remember who they are. That's like you and me. Believers, individuals called into the marvelous grace of God and Jesus Christ, and he's saying, don't live that way. And don't live like them. What are those lusts like? Well, outrageous filth, shameless self-indulgence, insolent, rebellious embrace of anything that's contrary to God. What he is and what he has stated is good. It's craving after what is evil. It's drunkenness. It's drinking too much and more than we should. It's, it's revelries and drunken carousing. You know that abominable and observable behavior of someone who's completely inebriated and can't stand up nor think straight. Idolatries, though, is the one that kills me. Idolatries. Everything associated with idolatry, the embrace and separation of races and activism that demands and calls for that separation. When the gospel should unite us and tell us that each of us, there is no distinction, we're children of God. Anything that speaks against that is just another form of idolatry rabid personal autonomy and humanism, evangelism of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I heard that statement this week and it, it was like a light turned on. It's so very true. The things that we see, the patterns that we complain about, the ungodliness we observe, and we think the world is going to hell in a handbasket as fast as it possibly can. It is an evangelism of an idolatrous form of religion. It is nothing less. Approval of hatreds based upon imagined powers of privileges. Expulsion of Christians. What is this, if not an intolerance of God? When you're pushed out of the public sphere, when, when your coworkers no longer listen to you and wave you off because they don't want to hear it from you anymore, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting God. You expel Christians from the public sphere and from service and public service. You say your faith shouldn't inform your public decisions at all. You're saying, God, we have no use for you. As a country, as a people, we have no use for you. There are many other different forms. Forms of homosexuality, the embrace of a lie, the gods of sexuality, illicit, non-committed, sexual infidelity. Homosexuality, throwing off the shackles of covenant and purity for self-indulgent sex. Gods of social media and influencers. What are influencers doing? Influencers are saying, look, look at me, imitate my life, buy what I buy, buy what I'm selling you, drink the elixir. Oh, it's it's just like the... The people of old who used to go around in the wagons and say, look, at all you need to do is drink this elixir that's got snake venom in it, and and if you drink it, it's going to make you better, and all it does is make you drunk, you feel better a little bit about your life, and that's all it really is. It's a snake oil salesman of old. The influencers are saying, look, if you do what I do, if you drink what I drink, if you think the way I think, if you talk the way I talk, if you walk the way I walk, don't they all talk the same and walk the same? then you'll be just like me. Come and be conformed to my image. It's it's nothing less than idolatry. Oh, but they have millions of followers. They are to be sacrificed to and followed and revered. They are to be imitated in all their foolishness. There is the evangelism of Transsexualism, imagining that one can become something that one is not and never will be. It defies the creator's design and purpose. The street cred that says that we have to have the notches of criminalism and all of the accessories that call for the worship and imitation of perpetrators and as a godlike figure who can do as he pleases and escape justice and God's justice and throw off the shackles of what is pure and decent and good and noble and pure and lovely and excellent, worthy of praise. We worship the gods of shared privilege while throwing away God's commands to work, to earn, to live peaceably, and not seek unjust and unlawful gain. We destroy the law, both natural and civil, in order to exalt and rejoice over Satan, his image of lawlessness. We even have celebratory t-shirts and one particular... Store. And somehow these parents who buy these things think that their children will escape from the influence of the devil. They're crazy. Mm-hmm. Selfishness, humanism, self-worship, idolatry, idolatry of self, wokeness. What is it? It's, it's a repudiation of God and throwing away God. Man has embraced himself and he worships himself night and day. What you see on the nightly news isn't, isn't only anti-Christian, it's, it's anti-God. America is seeking with all of its strength, with all of its might, to throw off the shackles of God, to, to deny Jesus Christ, to deny the Word of God, to, to be to, to move away from the will of God, and to deny the conviction of the Holy Spirit. America is saying, I do not need God. And so what must you do? A Christian has to say, no, I cannot live this way. No, I cannot go with you in your debaucheries. No, I will not be an adherent of your idolatry. No, I will not get sucked up into this craze. No, I will not live that way. No, I don't want to look like you. No, I don't want to be like you. No, I don't even believe you. No, I will not surrender myself to something else because Jesus has given himself for me. And so all that I can do, my highest privilege over the course of my life is to give myself back to him. To give back every day a little bit more of myself and to say, Lord, take it and overrule my life and make it worthy of you. I can't embrace this evangelism of idolatry because I serve a God who has suffered for me so that I would not embrace anything contrary to himself and his manifest glory and his suffering son and so that I would participate in the life of Christ and I would have the mind of Christ and thus know happiness and joy in the midst of suffering because I understand why I suffer and the good that it does for me. Christians are capable of retaining idolatries, though of a seemingly less evil nature as well. The God of my own opinion. I'm right. You're wrong. You don't agree with me, I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm going to another church. How many times have we seen that? It's nothing less than the idolatry of one's own opinion. God's Word commands us to be... In harmony with one another, to seek peace, to seek unity, to pursue it. We're only half hearted creatures, aren't we? There are many other gods. We are offended when anyone might disagree. We're gods of hurt feelings and offended sensibilities, casting off the obligations of grace and forgiveness, shaking off the principle. That I'm not my own, asserting my perceived rights, laziness, entitlement. Are they aren't these rebellion against God in some form? Aren't these an embrace of idolatry of self, infidelity to God, forsaking covenant love and boundaries of commandments, of for doing what I want rather than being a faithful servant in the work and ministry of the church? The Christian has to be ruthless with sin. Now, let's, let's make this argument very, very clear. You're not saved on the basis of your turning away from sin. You turn away from sin because you have been received in the beloved Son of God. We turn away from sin precisely because we've been justified by grace. We're not seeking justification. We are taught in the Bible that we have been justified by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. God is glorified in our salvation. We cannot justify ourselves. But the justified person will bear fruit to the glory of God. And the justified person understands and has a renewed understanding that the way of walking in the will of God, submitting to the will of God, is the life that is blessed. We experience the blessing of God, the greatest joy, the deepest happiness. that it's there where our soul's delight is in doing the will of our God, our Father. Nothing makes us happier. But as we do this, we need to argue this very thing. If we need to state this very clearly. You know, I've, I've spent enough of my life on useless and vaporous things, worthless pursuits. I've wasted time. I've wasted gifts. I'll, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in service to Jesus Christ. I'm going to pursue God and His will. I'm going to do it a little bit more day by day. If I set huge goals, I'll never do them and I'll just I'll just get depressed. But day by day, little by little, I'm going to put something in front of me. I'm going to remind myself somehow. I'm going to pray incessantly for this. This is going to become part of my daily prayer life. Lord, give me the mind of Christ. Let me draw pleasure from this and joy eternal. But more than that, let my life be an offering of thanks to the God who has saved me and given himself for me. The psalmist cries this in Psalm 119, "'Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes.'" And I will observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. And revive me in your ways. There's a little there's a literal a literal reading that's possible here. How does the world respond to this when a Christian takes seriously their calling to live for Jesus Christ and to have the mind of Christ? They think it's strange that you're not racing together with them into the same prodigal bubble puddle of blasphemy. Let me repeat that. They think it's strange, as as I went through the text, the Greek text, this this is the literal translation I came up with. They think it's strange that you're not racing together with them into the same prodigal puddle of blasphemy. In our English Bibles, it's translated. They're surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. They think it's strange that you don't jump into the same puddle of blasphemous idolatry with them. As we look out at the world, haven't we in the last few months, the last few years said, this is strange. The world has gone strange. It's odd. Think about it. The things that we knew as children, the values that we had, the things that... We're absolutely taboo. All of that is gone. It's all gone. And it's not going to come back. Where, where have you ever observed any kind of a, a renewal of societal, cultural values? Only when that society is destroyed by its own sin and God raises up in another place a people holy and zealous for good works. They think you're weird. They think you're bizarre. They think you're odd. They think you're strange. And the spirit of those things is simply that they will, they're going to talk evil about you. You're whacked. You're odd. They roll their eyes when they speak about you. But that's okay because Peter has already made it clear. You are strangers. You are aliens. You're not of this world. There's a cost equation on the side of the question of whether or not we will we will take up the mind of Christ and live for God in this world. If you embrace the world's influence, it's going to cost you Christ. If you embrace the world and its influence and you say, I'm going to go with the stream, I'm going to embrace the new values. Certainly the word of God changes and this is a new age. So the word of God has to change with it. You've lost Christ. And every church out there with a rainbow flag on the front has lost Christ. Unless that rainbow flag means exactly what it was when God established it. That it is a promise of his coming again, of his refusal to destroy the world again through a deluge. That's what it is. God's promise of salvation But if you embrace Christ, the world will hate you. That's the other side of the equation. If you embrace Christ, the world will hate you. And but, but we're encouraged in this because Jesus said, they will hate you because they first hated me. We need to be reminded that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So the last thing that we see in this passage is that we are to live, if we, if we take up the mind of Christ, if we put on the, the whole thinking of Christ and we begin to think in a Christ-like way, we're going to live and anticipate in the anticipation of Christ's return. And that's, that's what he says in verse 5. They, as we think about the ungodly, what's going to happen to them? They've made fun of us. They think we're odd. Their minds are so skewed. In Romans 1, they've exchanged the truth for a lie. And as they look at you and me, they think, Oh, they're weird. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Doesn't just say God's wringing his hands against ungodliness. What am I going to do? How do I deal with this? God is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's not waiting. He's waiting according to his own purpose. He's not just trying to figure it out. And he's not taken by surprise. He's ready. God is ready. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. And so because he's ready to judge the living and the dead, what has he done? He has preached the gospel to the living and to the dead. What does the Bible say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9? For you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Forgive me, Ephesians chapter 1. But well, what did he do with you? He made you alive in Christ Jesus. And so what do we do? Well, what's going to happen to the people that think we're weird, that have no interest in God, who have embraced idolatry and every sin? They'll give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living ones and the dead ones literally. Which one are you? Well, if you're on this, if you're listening to me and you hear me, you've not yet entered the grave. You are a living one. One day, you will be a dead one. Our bodies will be interned in the grave. Our spirit will ascend to God. And he's ready to judge the living and the dead. He's ready. But right now, today, you're a living one. And so what do you do? You respond to the Gospel and believe. Jesus Christ, this is good news, Jesus Christ lived and He died, but in His living and His dying and His rising again and His ascension, while He was here in this world, He suffered in the flesh. He suffered in the flesh so that you who now live in the flesh might have everlasting life if you only believe in In him. And begin from this day forward. Well to acknowledge to God. That you have embraced idolatries of every kind. And to repent of that sin before him. Don't lie. Don't say I haven't sinned. Don't lie and say. I don't go on sinning. I'm not sinning right now. First John says, you make God a liar, and he'll hold you accountable. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. Why is the gospel preached to the living and the dead? Because the dead were once alive, and when they were alive, they too beheld the gospel of God. Even now today, there are some of you who are spiritually dead who may hear me this morning. You're spiritually dead, and you 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 haven't known it. You've never understood this, but maybe now today you've come to recognize, I am dead. There is no spiritual life in me. Christ is not living me in me. I've never armed myself with this way of thinking as Christ did, and I've never understood a purpose in suffering. Well, believe the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Tell God. Pray right now. Tell God that you've been living for yourself. You've made idols of every, everything you possibly could. You've worshipped under every bush, under every tree. You've gone into every place and every high place. Your life is filled with idolatry. You've never worshipped God. So the day has come now when you must bend the knee to the only God and trust in Him. All flesh is as grass and dies. Even so, those who believe when they die, what do they do? How do they live? They live in the spirit. When you die, you will go to your God. When you die like the thief on the cross at Christ's hand, you will ascend to him and be with him instantly in paradise. If you die today, there is nothing to fear. Only life eternal to be gained. After we die, we will be with the Lord. There's no greater consolation. There is no more solemn blessing in all of life. When we pass from this world, we will be with the Lord. And so if that, if that is true of you, arm yourself with the way in which Christ approached suffering. J. L. Oswald Sanders tells the story of a native missionary in Indiana He walked barefoot from village to village, preaching the gospel, and after trekking one day many miles, full of discouragement, he came to a village, he tried to share the gospel, but he was refused, and he was driven out of town, he was exhausted, laid himself down under a tree near the edge of his village, that village, and he slept. When he woke up, the whole town was hovering around him. It's a little scary. The entire town had gathered around, and the headman of the village said, He confessed that they came to look him over while he was sleeping. And when they saw the missionary's battered and blistered feet, they concluded that he must be worthy to be listened to. They became eager to hear the message this man was willing to suffer for. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. The gospel has been preached to dead men and dead women. And dead children lost in their sins, dead in their sins and trespasses. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that is your heritage and your inheritance in Christ Jesus. So as you see other dead men and women around you, have compassion and share the gospel with them. Display the gospel in your conduct and way of life and be ready, as the Apostle Peter said in chapter three, to give a good answer filled with grace and love, with mercy and with all kinds of patience for the reason, for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. You see how interconnected all of this is. If you've got nothing to say. Maybe you haven't experienced the grace of God through Christ. But if you have, there's much to say. May God open our mouths. May God make us faithful witnesses. And may God in his grace give us the mind of Christ. Let's pray.